Good morning. So I wondered first, how many of you have had your coffee today? Okay, so if you haven't, um, just not in case you haven't, you might realize that I am in fact not Bill Baubach. <laughs> I'm the younger and better looking version of Bill. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, and if you, if you actually believe that, you'd better go get another cup of coffee really quick. So uh, Bill's out of town um, this week, and I know we had a, a good week, hopefully, with Thanksgiving. Maybe you've had too much food, and uh, you don't know who I am, but uh, Bill's out of town, and so we're here. We're going we're gonna to do this together uh, this morning. I'm really excited to be here to wrap up this Last Supper on the Moon series. And before we get started, I want to take a moment and tell you about what's beginning next week. Perhaps you remember last year we did a series in the summer called At the Movies. It was a series where we looked at different movies and drew parallels and life lessons with stories in the Bible. Back by popular demand, we're doing this again, uh, this time with called Christmas at the Movies throughout December. Next week we start of what I think is one of the must-see Christmas movies of the year, which is Elf, and Tony's going to lead us through a discussion on finding where we belong. I'm super excited about this series next week, and I hope you'll make every effort to join us through the holiday season. So back to today. Over the past seven weeks, Bill has taken us through the seven miracles found in John's gospel, and he's paired them with the Apollo space program. <clears throat> if you're a fan of NASA and a fan of space travel, or even if not, we are living in an amazing time. If you haven't heard, the world is set to witness a brand new series of events that will once again take humanity on an unimaginable journey together. It's a journey where people will look to the heavens and ponder. They'll ponder creation. They'll ponder their place in the universe, and it creates an amazing opportunity for us. I think it's quite fitting for us that only 11 days ago, after years of anticipation, NASA's Artemis prop, um, program is finally off the ground. On November 16th, Artemis 1 was successfully launched as an uncrewed spacecraft on a round-trip voyage to orbit the moon in preparation for future flights. In fact, right now, Artemis 1 is currently orbiting the moon, and will do so for two more weeks before returning to Earth. <clears throat> in this picture, on the left, you can see the Saturn V rocket, which is the rocket that took the astronauts to the moon in Apollo 11. And on the right is a new Artemis SLS rocket. This mission is just the first step in an ambitious new space campaign with several exciting goals, including installing a lunar space station, which will establish a semi-permanent lunar base. My hope is that when you hear about the Artemis program in the future, you'll think back to this, this series and, and just think about what we talked about. So it's exciting times, and really to me it helps make the Apollo missions that we've been talking about come alive. Now much of this inspiration, uh, if you've been here in other weeks, you'll know that it came from a book called The Last Supper on the Moon by Levi Lusco. It's a brand new book, it was just published this year. I've read it, thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, I've learned a lot, and for me, reading about NASA and the space program and paralleling that with the Apollo moon landing uh, and the life of Jesus has, has been really incredible. So I just want to give you some flavors that were in the book. The book looks at seven phrases that Jesus uttered on the cross. Uh, it looks at the words of Jesus to the seven churches in Revelation, and it looks at the seven different I am statements from Jesus, all while showing similarities between the life of Jesus and the Apollo 11 mission. And I'm also guessing that many of you are like me, you did not know and had never heard the story of Buzz Aldrin had gotten specific. 
we have Houston, we have a problem. <laughs> He'd gotten a specific permission from NASA to bring along some bread and some wine uh, so that he could make the taking of communion or the Last Supper a uh, priority for him uh, after they landed on the moon. So just as the video said, the Last Supper became the first supper on the moon. So over the past seven weeks of this series, we've learned how to face rejection and suffering with a new perspective, how to live with a childlike faith, how to unlock a more profound sense of purpose in our lives, and to obtain a grander view of Jesus. Ultimately, the goal has been to set us all on a trajectory to live life more abundantly. So there's a good spaceflight word for you, trajectory. The Britannica Dictionary defines trajectory as the curved path along which something, such as a rocket, moves through the air or through space. Now, I've watched enough movies that I can picture this. In fact, the last time we were on vacation with my family on the southeast coast of Florida, we were walking along the beach just after sunset when we saw something in the sky that, that quickly captured our attention. At first, I thought it was an airplane on an odd flight path, but soon it was evident that it was far more than that. We witnessed a trail of smoke that blossomed and pulsated, and you, and you can see this from our cell phone video. I know it's not great, but you can imagine how impressive this must have looked for up to us from the beach. It was a truly incredible sight, and it, it was quickly clear what this was. Of course, we whipped out our cell phones and could tell really quickly that it was indeed a rocket launch from much farther north at Cape Canaveral. Then as we continued to watch, the trajectory became evident. It didn't go straight up, as you might imagine, from when you see that rocket launching on TV. It curved outwards and seemingly flattened out and shot out over the ocean until we could no longer see it. Its trajectory set it on a precise course to soon reach an orbit around Earth. <clears throat> I'm no rocket scientist, uh, but I've watched plenty of TV and movies, and I know that if that trajectory is incorrect, even by a little, then the mission is doomed to failure. So back to the dictionary. I scanned it onto the second definition of trajectory, and it said that trajectory is often used figuratively to describe a process of change or development that leads toward a particular result. Wow, a process of change or development that leads to a particular result. The actions that we take, or even those that we don't take, set our trajectory leading to a particular result. So what do you think happens when our actions threaten to adjust our desired trajectory? We must guard the integrity of our trajectory with everything we have. Today we're going to ponder this. And we'll come back to trajectory later on while we start by looking at some text from the book of John. As I mentioned, over the last seven weeks, we've gone through the seven miracles written about in the book of John. In those miracles, beyond the clear description of the miracles themselves, one of the things that Jesus accomplished was teaching and preparing the disciples for what was to come. They needed to prepare, be prepared for a time when he would not be there. And not only had they been sent, spending their time with an effort with Jesus, traveling with him, laughing with him, eating with him, they had altered their lives to follow him. So when we left off last week, Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. And we talked about days when you feel like God let you down and maybe you felt like God wasn't present. But in the end, we find out that God had a plan all along and Jesus was glorified. So we move on after that amazing miracle and come to a flurry of significant up and down events that really start to change things for the disciples. 
First, the Jewish leaders plot to kill Jesus. But then comes a famous scene where Jesus rides triumphantly into Jerusalem on a donkey, which we know is Palm Sunday. But then things quickly turn, and Jesus predicts his death. Followed by an amazing act of service where Jesus washes the feet of his disciples. And then finally, two predictions where Jesus predicts his betrayal by one of his disciples and predicts Peter's upcoming denial. So you see, that's a lot. That's a lot for your average mild man or group of disciples. Those events are described in John chapters 11, 13, and if you read through them, you'll see that the disciples were confused and didn't always know, really know what was going on. Now, can you blame them? Everything that they have known is now starting to cr come crashing down. You could imagine the feelings that they might be having, feelings of abandonment, fear, feelings of loneliness, maybe a sense of who will they be able to turn to next. And they were just a bunch of guys, but they were up against it. Just ordinary guys, yet these men were handpicked by Jesus. Twelve guys out of how many thousands and thousands of people in the region. Sort of like the astronauts that were chosen. They were chosen out of many. And, and to make it even more precise, at the time of the Apollo missions, they had to be pilots. And it takes a special person to be a pilot. I know this firsthand. Many of you know Mark Woodard, a longtime member here and a pilot. He's taken me to fly out a few times. This past year, we went out in his super cool 1938 Stearman, which is a World War II era red biplane. Here we are sitting in open cockpits with goggles and ear protection. And there's a reason that this picture on the lower left is smaller. I expected to look like Tom Cruise in Top Gun, <laughs> but instead I looked like Snoopy ready to take on the Red Baron. Anyway, we're flying over the Ohio River, and Mark tells me to take the stick. So in this old plane, control is from this long handle that sticks up out of the floor in front of you. He tells me to take some turns and get a little crazy. So being the thrill seeker that I am, I grabbed that stick, and I pulled hard to the right, and I pulled hard to the left. I was banking hard, diving and rolling. It was amazing and breathtaking. Actually, no. Actually, I was so pitiful. In reality, in reality, I think I turned less than one degree in each direction, and the plane barely moved. It was really pretty sad. Well, then Mark took the plane, took control, and it was unbelievable what he could do with the plane. It was then that I realized that I had something that, my pilots have something that I don't. In fact, I almost lost my breakfast, which was really good because it's an open-air cockpit with Mark right behind me. So anyway, the astronauts were chosen. The disciples were chosen. Each had a specific background and talents that made them ideal for the role. But sometimes it can be hard to remember that all those specifically chosen, those disciples were just normal people. And this was all playing out real time for them, and this was not easy. Life is hard. We try to do what's right, but it's hard and confusing at times. This journey of life can be a lonely place, feeling at times like we're abandoned and no one is with us. But Jesus knew exactly what his disciples were feeling. And what comes next, right in the middle of their fear and their anxiety, comes a promise. Jesus promised the Holy Spirit. And that same promise is for us today. Let's start by looking at John chapter 14, verse 15. And Jesus says, if you love me, Keep my commands. Before Jesus makes the promise that I just mentioned, he gives them a statement. 
which is almost like a question. I think it can be easy enough for us to look at this from the viewpoint of the disciples. You know, they've already altered their lives to follow Jesus. Of course they should be keeping his commands. It's obvious, right? But what about us? What if we take that statement and use it as a question directed as us? I sort of wish my eighth grade English teacher could be here to hear me ex- compl- uh, stating that a question and a statement is the same thing. So it says, if you love me, keep my commands. So when we think about that, that's when it becomes a question. Are we keeping his commands? Do we love him? And if we say yes, what then? Are we adjusting our life and our choices accordingly? What has our heart? I know full well what grabs my attention when my attention should be focused on Jesus. And I expect that you do too. It doesn't mean those things are all bad. But there are areas where we need to start altering that trajectory. How much time did you spend yesterday or even this this morning scrolling endlessly through some social media platform? Hopefully that's not what any of you are doing right now. But sometimes I catch myself doing exactly that. And when I wake up out of my app-induced coma, I can't believe the time that I just wasted. So let's take a look at how verse 15 would look in computer programming. This is pretty simple. It's about as basic as it gets. It's called an if-then statement. First, you have a hypothesis. If if that hypothesis is proved to be true, then a specific action will will take place. Basically, if something happens, then an action takes place. So if we take this from verse 15, it would go, if you love me, then you will keep my commands. There's no deeper complexity to this statement. It's very straightforward. We either love him or we don't. And if we love him, then our only choice is to obey him. Where this gets a little personal is what it means if we don't follow the second half of the equation. If we don't follow his commands, then we prove the hypothesis, the first part, incorrect. What he's saying is if you don't follow his commands, you don't love him. This is one of the chances we're going to have today to do a little self-inspection. How do you complete the second half of that statement? Your answer to that tells you whether you love him or not. And that's really pretty intense. So now that he's given his disciples and us something that seemingly is so simple yet really quite deep, I kind of wonder how long he paused to let that sink in before he jumped into his next statement to his disciples, which is the promise. So I'm going to reread verse 15 and add in verse 16 here. It says, if you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. In this verse, he promised them an advocate. Remember, this was just on the heels of those difficult events that they were going through, likely leaving the disciples confused and scared. But you see, Jesus was not about to leave the disciples hanging. After all, he'd spent countless hours preparing for them, preparing them for the eventuality that they would need to carry the torch. And he knew exactly what they needed. They needed comfort, and they needed an advocate. And Jesus promised both. He promised them the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit would be their advocate. An advocate is someone who publicly supports another person. The role of an advocate is to fight for someone else. An advocate will be there in times of need, someone to turn to and help you, someone to keep you on a proper trajectory. What does this mean for us? This means that the Holy Spirit is there for us 
We can call on him and he will fight for us. When times are the toughest, we have a pocket advocate always there for us. If we look back into the entirety of Apollo 11, man had never been on the moon. The world was watching, but you better believe the astronauts had advocates back here on Earth. The number of people that had worked behind the scenes to get to this moment was staggering. If you've never seen the movie Hidden Figures, you should go watch it. If you've got young, young girls in your family, even better, as the story of what can be accomplished is overwhelming and in inspiration. And truth be told, I, I can't watch this movie without crying. Katherine Johnson was a black woman working in an unwelcoming environment. The story of her perseverance is so incredibly powerful. She was a genius, as close to a living computer as a person could be, and absolutely necessary. Computers were new, and they were new to the people using them, and, and all those computers were crucial to the mission. She still had to produce results while working against prejudice and overwhelming odds. Catherine and others were needed to perform calculations for Apollo 11, and we're talking intense, highly complicated calculations. Their calculations were needed to determine the necessary trajectory for the command module to re-enter the Earth's atmosphere, and they had to be precise. Imagine taking a marble and needing to throw it across an area the size of the city of Los Angeles to hit the edge of a piece of paper. That's the accuracy that it takes to return the Earth to the, return the, Earth, to the Earth from the moon. You need to strike the atmosphere precisely the right angle so you don't skip off the atmosphere like a stone off a lake and hurtle forever away. Or going too steep and be burned up at 25,000 miles per hour with temperatures up to 5,000 degrees Fahrenheit, which is half the temperature of the surface of the sun. So you see, advocates are important. And is it better to have a better advocate than the Holy Spirit? Behind the scenes, behind what we can see, the Holy Spirit is fighting for us. The astronauts could not see the countless individuals working together to ensure their success, but we know they were there. Verse 17 describes him, and verse 18 seals the deal. It says, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you will know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. These are the words of Jesus telling us he will not leave us alone. There is no if. There's no hypothesis. There is no if then. He will be with you always. There are no contingencies. That is his promise. So no matter what is going on, our best of days, our worst of days, our sickness, our health, our laughter, our tears, all of it and all the days in between. And you know what? I believe he lives those days with us. I think he cries with us. I think he laughs with us. Just always there to count on. Is there anything ever more comforting than that? There's no person here on earth that can make that promise. Not even our loved ones that we count on the most. The Holy Spirit, as our advocate, will lead and guide us on the path towards obedience and holiness. This is the path that leads to lasting joy and true happiness. We're never alone. And that is the guidance we need because without guidance, trajectory is nothing more than an aimless path to destruction. We need that guidance. And you can be absolutely certain 
100% certain that the guidance from the Holy Spirit will put you on a precise trajectory necessary for your life. Far more accurate than any computer trying to calculate the path to the long-range target the size of the edge of a piece of paper. I want to take some time here to talk about one of my favorite stories in the book. And it all revolves around three words. Go, no go. Let's go to the moment when the landing on the moon was imminent. A little over 100 hours after the launch of Apollo 11, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin undocked from the Columbia Command Module, leaving Michael Collins behind to pilot the Columbia. Neil and Buzz were to be the first two men on the moon. They were now in the lunar module, nicknamed Eagle, which would be the ship that landed on the moon. An hour and 20 minutes later, while in orbit, they were given permission to begin slowing down in preparation for landing. An hour later, the final ignition for the 12-minute powered descent to the moon began. The world held its breath. Life magazine reporter Norman Mailer called this moment the climax of the greatest week since Christ was born. What was happening back on Earth was a flurry of activity necessary to make an instantaneous decision of whether or not they could land. Despite a series of persistent alarms, despite cert certain doubt and fear, could the eagle be landed that day? Or would they need to, be a, need to abort? Fuel was at a premium. Make a, make a mistake here, and there wouldn't be enough fuel to get back off the moon. The stakes were real. A call had to be made, and it had to be made quickly. Flight director Gene Kranz had asked members of his team of flight controllers at Mission Control for a go, no-go decision about continuing to the moon called a powered descent. This specific team was on shift at crucial moments during the eight-day mission, most notably during descent and landing. They had trained strenuously for this mission, and they had to make the call right now. And I mean fast. There was no time, all while the world was watching. So let's listen in, but listen closely, because this goes quick. Okay, all flight controllers, go, no, go for landing. Retro. Go. Fido. Go. Guidance. Go. Control. Go. Telcom. Go. GNC. Go. Ecom. Go. Surgeon. Go. Capcom, we're go for landing. Okay, I'll flex. Okay, awesome. So that, those crackly voices coming in, coming in over the intercom sends chills down my spine every time. They are iconic and unmistakable. And as I was preparing for this message, I listened to this clip over and over. All the confidence and all the, uh, all the guys making rapid, clear, precise decisions with confidence. I can't even imagine all the background behind the decisions to make these calls. All of the flight controllers, from trajectory guidance to surgeon, had to be a go, otherwise they had to abort. And we know the story. A few minutes later, we would hear the famous words that the eagle has landed and the world celebrated. All through the descent, there was still time for the astronauts to, to abort. Even once it landed, they had the option to instantly blast off again, firing rockets that would hurtle them right back to the Columbia. They then had two minutes to make a stay, no stay decision. They had made it through the alarms, critically low fuel. They had to worry about the boulders and craters and where to land. But they still, they landed, and, but they could still abort. But their determination and expertise kept them there to fulfill their mission. When Jesus was on the cross, hanging in unimaginable pain and suffering, both physical and emotional, Shred of dignity, he uttered seven different phrases. 
One of those phrases was, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This moment of time for Jesus on the cross is also the crescendo. It's the climax. I believe it's by far the most dramatic, forceful, and intense part of his death. He could have aborted. Up to this point on the cross, his statements had been focused on others. His enemies, the guy next to him, and his mom. Now was the time, the worst time for Jesus, when he would bear the sins of the world. And I believe that this is the moment that Jesus most dreaded. Adam in the forbidden fruit, Cain's murder, David's adultery and murder, Peter's denial, my sins, every wrong thing any of you has done, all of it. 1 Peter 2, 23 and 24 says, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. This was the time to abort when it was as bad as it could possibly get. John 12, 27, we see that Jesus had prayed, dreading this eventuality. He could have, pray, he could have prayed for his father to save him from this death. He said, now my soul is troubled and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason that I came to this hour. Nothing, and I mean nothing, was going to stop Jesus from completing his mission. What if Jesus was asked for a go-no-go decision in a NASA style of mission control? What if he was asked in this moment, the worst of all moments, for a go-no-go. He was beaten. He was humiliated, separated. I suspect it would go something like this. Jesus, are we a go-no-go for crucifixion? Body, go. Heart, go. Mind, go. We are a go for crucifixion. Even though every human part of him had to be screaming to stop, to abort, no matter the state of his body, his heart, and his mind, they were all beaten and almost destroyed, but the mission was still a go. This led to the most important event in the history of the universe, more important in the creation of the world, more important in the invention of the wheel or the fall of the Roman Empire, more important in the Industrial Revolution, more important in the first vaccine for smallpox, and as much as I like NASA, more important than the missions to the moon. The resurrection of Christ surpasses them all, and without it, all is meaningless. The fellow from Life magazine that called the lunar landing module the climax of the greatest week since Christ was born might have been better served to say it was the climax of the greatest week since the resurrection of Christ. The Apostle Paul, probably the most read author in the history of the world, wrote about this in his first letter to the church in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 15, 3-4, he says, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. Well, there it is. First importance. Not just very important, not sort of important, not just a nice thing, not a good to have, but right at the very top of everything Paul has ever written about, and he has described the Christian walk of faith more than anyone else. 
Jesus died and he rose again, and that is what is most important. Thank God that he gave, that he has given us this path, and that Jesus was unwilling to press that giant red abort button. So if we go back to the story in John, 11, John 14, Jesus knew what was about to happen to him. He knew all that we were just talking about, upcoming pain and suffering, and that it would happen to him. When we know that he knew what was coming and what he would endure and still carried on, we can see his love and concern pouring out for his disciples and for us. His mission was greater. His trajectory would not be altered. Verse 26, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have said to you. Simply put, he promised to give them everything they needed. That is there for us now more than ever. We need a daily encounter with him. We need to study and learn. We need to join together with fellow Christians. Folks, I want to challenge you. Be here. Get involved. Bring your kids to church every week. Every week. What you teach them now, what you show them that is important to you, will help them define their own trajectory later. Just saying this now, it's overwhelming thinking about what a responsibility is as parents. This is where we need to be. We need each other. We need you, and God needs you. It all comes back to trajectory. If you weren't quite yet convinced of the value of trajectory, I challenge you to go watch the movie Apollo 13. This takes place only two missions later from this series we've been going through here. Apollo 12 had been a success, but Apollo 13 became a failure and turned to a desperate fight for survival in one of the most riveting space stories of all time. After multiple seemingly catastrophic failures, they had the slimmest of chances to correct their trajectory. The smallest mistakes would doom them. And if you're not familiar with this, you have to watch the movie to hear the rest. But if you do, I assure you that you will not underestimate the importance of the integrity of your trajectory. Then in John 14, 27, after Jesus provided their needs, he gives them peace. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. What a fitting summation of the preparation that Jesus laid out for his disciples, from calling them to training them, to building relationships with them, to preparing for their future, he finished with peace. What a calming effect that must have had, calming their fears, their questions, and their doubts with peace. If you stop now and take a really good look at your life, all of it, not just looking at yourself right now, sitting here listening to the message, following on the scriptures, but how do you see yourself really? What is your trajectory? Who or what do you let guide you? What you do now, how you decide to live now has a potential to alter your trajectory forever. And if we miss this, we miss forever. Don't be that stone skipping off the edge of the atmosphere. Is this the time for you to set yourself on a path to receive that gift of salvation? Perhaps it's time for you to finally consider baptism and receive that gift and let the Holy Spirit in your life and be your advocate. We'd love to talk to you before you leave today. 
We all have some people in the back of the room to talk with or pray with. If you're online watching, there's someone you can chat with there too. We love to share the peace that Jesus offers. Let us be your advocate. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this day and the opportunity to be here and, and worship you. And Father, you are amazing. You are the creator of all things. You created the earth. You created the moon, the planets, and the stars in the universe. You made it all, and it all represents your glory. Thank you for, for what you've given us as the, the path, your word, your son that li- lined us up and gives us the direction so we can set our trajectory following you so we'll someday uh, we'll enter into eternity with you. Thank you for, for your trust in us and thank you for the message you've given us today. And please be with those here that we take that message and take it without us today and throughout the week. And it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.